Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. A'udhu billahi minashaytan rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Al-Fatihi lima uglik wa khatimi lima sabaq. نصر الحق بالحق والهادي إلى صراطك المستقيم وعلى آله حق قدره ومقداره العظيم. Allah, we ask you to send your blessings upon our master Muhammad, the opener of what was closed and the seal of what came before him, champion of the truth by the truth and guide to the straight path, and upon his family and companions as is befitting his noble rank. Amin. Allahumma ya Karim, akramna bi nur al-fahm. وَأَخْرَجْنَا مِنْ ظُلُمَاتُ الْوَحَمْ وَلَا حَوْلَ وَلَا قُوَةَ إِلَّا بِلَّهِ O Allah, the noble, the generous, we ask you to ennoble us with the light of understanding and to remove us from the shadows of illusion. And there is no power nor might except through God. I mean, Islam is really an affair of the heart. It, it is about the heart. The heart is the place where we know and we meet and we have that connection to our Lord. Um, so I want to continue talking about that just a little bit before like we get into like the Hadith of Jibreel um, because, you know, we could launch straight into like learning how to pray, for example. But um, if you're just handed the prayer as like, okay, here's the rules, this is the instruction manual, it's going to feel dry and it's going to feel rule-based really when it's not, at least that's not what it's intended to be. Um, one of the, the really profound things that I, I heard from a scholar named Sayyid Hussein Nasser, who is uh, you know, both a, a great teacher of the religion, but he's also a, a professor of like comparative religion. He said, you know, if you go and you study um, other world religions, you tend to learn about what we would call like the spiritual tradition of those religions. But oftentimes when you go to study Islam, the thing that you get as the introduction is like the law, like the rules. And that gives people this impression that what this religion is about at the end of the day is like a set of rules. Um, do this, don't do that. Where in reality, the rules are part of a larger whole. And they're meant to be stepping stones along a spiritual path that is about that relationship with our creator, that is um, heartfelt, that is loving, and that is beautiful. So we're going to work on understanding sort of what that heartfelt loving connection is with our creator before we really like dive into like the meat of what this religion is. And really the best place to do this is to start at the beginning. And I mean the very beginning. So um, how many of you, just like by a show of hands, are familiar with the story of the first revelation to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Yeah, 
So the Prophet is meditating, just for those who aren't familiar. He, he's up in a mountain, in a cave, in a mountain that's overlooking the city of Mecca. He used to retreat here. Um, and he had been doing this for quite some time. And one night while he was doing it, um, an angel came to him. And the angel grabbed him and squeezed him and said, recite in Arabic, iqra, recite. And he responded, I do not know how to recite. I am not a reciter. The translation varies. The angel squeezes him again and says, recite. And he says, I, I don't know how to recite. Um, angel squeezes him a third time and says, recite. And finally he says, what should I recite? And then the words of revelation started pouring out of his heart and out of his mouth. And he said, Iqra bismirabik alavi khalaq, khalaq al insana min alaq. And that last word of that verse right there, alaq, is the name that this chapter of the Quran, as we have it today, is named after. It's Surah Alaq, the chapter of the alaq. So in alaq, let me translate the whole thing. Um, recite in the name of your Lord who created. Who created humanity from an alaq. And so an alaq is like a, uh, in this context, what it's referring to is uh, the, um, the fetus uh, of a baby that clings to the side of the mother's womb, right? And an alaq in, in a more general sense is like this sort of formless thing that is clingy right? Uh, like a chewed up piece of bubble gum is an alaq, right? Because it's, it's sticky, it'll like stick to your teeth, uh, and it's kind of formless. That's what an alaq is. So this is really interesting that God chooses to introduce himself to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and by extension, each and every one of us, by invoking this image of the alaq in the womb, right? God is saying like, hey, like, you know, like you introduce yourself to someone, you always try to make a good first impression. It's like, this is what people are generally going to remember you by, that first interaction that you have with them. How you introduce yourself really determines like how they remember you. And God is invoking the image of the womb. This is very interesting. Um, God is saying, in a sense, that, hey, like, I am your Lord. He identifies himself in these verses as your Lord, Rabbuka. Um, recite in my name. I am the one who created you. And I created you and placed you in your mother's womb. This is an image that really, like, uh, the commentary you could give on it uh, is pretty extensive. Um, because the word for womb in Arabic, rahim, it, it comes from the same root that two of God's names, really the two that we recite most often, the two names that we call upon God with most often, 
they also come from this root, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, which are like two different words for like compassionate and merciful, right? Rahman is uh, Allah in his like cosmic mercy, his cosmic compassion. Rahman is God's attribute that is merciful and compassionate without any sort of like qualification. Like the fact that we exist, you know, without like, uh, you know, the fact that we exist, like, and, you know, like our heartbeats without us having to like work on it. We don't have to make our heartbeat. We're able to breathe, right? These are gifts that come from Ar-Rahman because it's just like the default baseline of reality for us. Ar-Rahim is Allah in his capacity of the one who gives like special mercies. Like some of us are wealthy and some of us are not. Some of us have good families and some of us do not. These are special mercies that Allah gives to some people and withholds from other people, right? But all of those mercies come from Ar-Rahim because these are like special mercies that are not available to everyone, but they are available. So God, he's trying to say, hey, humanity, I created you. I am your Lord. And the relationship that I am trying to establish with you is that of the mother and her child. I care for you the way that a mother cares for her child. And that's why I'm giving you this image of the alaq in the mother's womb. Now, this is how the revelation begins, and it's how it actually continues for a long, long time. Um, the, the period of revelation that starts out the religion of Islam, we call it the Meccan period, because it's the period that um, preceded the Hijra, the immigration to Medina. And the verses that God is revealing to the Prophet وسلم, in this time, generally speaking, are characterized by this type of content. God is saying, this is who I am. I'm your Lord. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who placed all these signs in creation for you to ponder that point you to me. I'm the one who created the afterlife. I created the garden and I created the fire. And he's sort of like just really speaking to the early Muslim community. And he's not laying down any rules for the most part. He's not saying like, uh, you know, this is how you fast Ramadan. This is how you pray. For the most part, what he is doing is he's establishing that relationship. He's establishing a relationship. And he does that for the first 13 years of the revelation. So we have to think about that. As people who are learning Islam today, like we really have to take that into account uh, in terms of like how we're going to learn the religion. And this doesn't mean like, okay, wait 13 years to start learning how to pray. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if we launch straight into like the how-to manual stuff about Islam without also launching into really understanding who our creator is and what he wants from us in terms of a relationship and attempting to build that with him, then we're only getting half of the picture. And we're getting the half of the picture that really ought not to come first 
before the other half. We take them together. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying like, wait, don't fast Ramadan for 13 years. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying prioritize. Like when you, when you are sitting down to learn this religion, prioritize building that relationship with your Lord. And this is not something that I'm making up. I, this isn't Will Caldwell's like perspective on Islam. Uh, this isn't like some goofy Tatleef perspective on Islam. Uh, the companions, may God be pleased with them. They also spoke about this. And this is how they understood the religion. Uh, no one less than the wife of the prophet uh, Aisha. Aisha radiallahu anha. Um, the beloved wife of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, she talked about this, and she said that if Allah had forbidden—and listen to this, this is very interesting—if Allah had forbidden fornication and wine at the beginning of the revelation, we would have fled from this affair. And like you know, <laughs> I was stuck at a. Um, at a border crossing, uh, coming out of Jordan, going into Israel once. And I got stopped because they realized I was Muslim. And this was like a big problem because they're like a white guy who's a Muslim. Like he must be one of those crazy jihadists. And so they were interrogating me. And they're like, why would you embrace Islam? And you know what they said to me? They said, basically, you can't drink and you can't fornicate. I'm getting shy because the kids are here. Um, that's what they said. Like, why would you give that up? Why would you embrace a religion that forbids those things? And it's like, you know, the first thing that they thought about when they thought about Islam is like all the things you can't do. And it wasn't just them. You talk to a lot of people. You mentioned that you're Muslim. And the first thing that they have to say is like, hey, aren't there like a lot of things that you can't do? Like, is that hard? What's that like? Why did you choose that? Right? This is the perspective that many of us bring into the religion with us when we embrace it. And, you know, maybe like to us, it's like, well, yeah, like that's great. This is like a moral code. A lot of us are looking for that. And that's a good thing. But like that's not the be all end all of Islam. In fact, those rules that are laid out for us are intended to be stepping stones along the path to a healthy relationship with your creator to knowing who he is, to worshiping him from a place of sincerity. Aisha also said, radiallahu anha, something very similar. She said, the first verses to be revealed were from the shorter chapters at the end of the Quran. And here she's also talking about the Meccan chapters. Generally, the Meccan chapters are at the end of the Quran. She says, in them is mentioned paradise and hellfire until people were firmly established upon Islam. And then verses of lawful and unlawful were, were revealed. If the first verse revealed was, do not drink wine, they would have said, we will never stop drinking wine. And if the first verse to be revealed was, do not commit adultery, the people would have said, we will never stop committing adultery. So she's, I mean, this, so many hadith are narrated through this woman, Aisha. May God be pleased with her. Um, really, we know so much about this religion thanks to her. She's one of the first muhadiths of the religion, narrators of hadith. Um, and so what she's saying is like, this is how you draw people in. 
This is how you get people to a place where they are ready for the rules. You establish that relationship first, and then, because look, you know, uh, for those of you who are married, right, and maybe those of you who are not, but you've been in love before. Interesting, I heard a story once. Uh, this man came to like a great sheikh, and he said, sheikh, I want to be your student. Um, and the sheikh said, have you ever been in love? And he said, no. Why? And the sheikh said, uh, go fall in love first, and then come back to me, and you'll be ready to be my student. Why? Well, what's love got to do with it, as, as the song goes? Um, when you love someone, right, uh, and especially like when you fall in love with someone, like you want to be with them, you just love being in their presence, like that's how you spend, you want to spend your time when you're away, that's what you're thinking about, right? And eventually you get to this place where it's like, what can I do for this person, right? How, how can I make their life better? How can I serve them? And you get to a point where you're like, tell me, like, like with my wife, you know, like um, marriage is nothing but a constant struggle to understand them and uh, really serve them. It's service. Being a married person is an act of service, but you get there through love, right? Love is the pathway in. Uh, and so this is the foundation that has to be established first. Love's got everything to do with it. Love is the foundation. And so we really, like our job becomes, like if we're trying to learn this religion, especially if we're learning it for the first time, our job becomes establishing that foundation of love for our creator. And the way that we start doing that is getting in touch with our hearts. We just get in touch with our hearts. And those answers that we're looking for they become clarified for us eventually. Allah says in the Quran, uh, um, that indeed we have created mankind and we know what whispers uh, or what his soul whispers to him. Allah is saying, we're, we're intimately familiar with that place within him, the heart. We know what goes on there. And we are closer to him and her than the jugular vein. Allah is letting us know that he knows us better than we know ourselves. This thing called our heart that we tend to think of as being like, you know, uh, this very private place, this place of secrets, this place that no one on this earth will ever know as well as we do. Allah knows it better than we do, right? So this is an intimate place where we can actually meet our creator. And it's the starting point. It's the starting point for learning this religion. Allah said in a hadith Qudsi, which is, his speech, but it's not part of the Quran. Uh, he said, my heavens and my earth cannot contain me, but the heart of my believing servant contains me. 
My heavens and my earth cannot contain me, but the heart of my believing servant contains me. This is where we go to meet God, right? This is where uh, we go if we want to start building that relationship. This is the place that we turn to. And then there's the saying, it's not a hadith, but it's a saying of some of the early Muslims that man arafa nafsuhu faqad arafa rabba, that the one who knows himself has indeed known his Lord, right? There's a profound connection there, right? There's a profound connection there. Um, so if we are looking to know our Lord, we've got to start to know ourselves first. Um, and maybe it sounds like I'm harping on this, like really hard. And you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. Why, why are you like harping on this? And maybe some of you are even asking like, okay, I mean, this sounds interesting, right? But like, I've never heard any of this before. I've learned about the religion before. I've never heard any of this. Why aren't we talking about the Hadith of Jibreel? Which we will, but why aren't we doing it? Why are we not just getting started with that? Really, like, to teach this religion, right? Again, this comes back to knowing ourselves. We live in an interesting time, historically speaking. We live in a time that has problems that people in other parts of history have not had to deal with, right? Um, and really what I'm trying to say is we live in an age of distraction. We live in a profound age of distraction where our attention is constantly pulled outward and it very rarely goes inward. Right. In fact, it really starts to make a lot of us quite uncomfortable when we are put in positions where we are sort of forced to send our attention inwards, right? Because we're not used to doing that. And it's like once, once you start looking around in all those dusty closets, you don't always like what you find, right? But that's a unique historical problem. Generally speaking, human beings have had opportunities for silence and opportunities for reflection in ways that like, we just aren't afforded nowadays. Um, this is interesting. I'll give you a statistic to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about. In the year 1970, uh, the average American was exposed from 500 to 1600 advertisements per day. 500 to 1,600. By 2007, that number had increased to 5,000. And just last year, the number increased again from six to 10,000. Now you think about that. Your attention is sort of like, you know, it's almost like you're, you're just trying to walk down the street. You're going in a straight line. And six to 10,000 times a day, Someone's gonna like pull on your sleeve and say, hey, buy this. Hey, like, don't you think you need this in your life? And we get pulled into a habit of just constantly being outwardly focused. That's a new thing. It's even changed a lot since the year 1970, right? And usually, I mean, if you look at advertisements, it tends to play upon the worst parts of us, right? Like our appetites, our passions, 
our lusts. Like these are the tools that advertisers use to grab our attention. Uh, in fact, you know, like online advertisers, like the makers of apps like Instagram and like Facebook and things like that, they've, they actually have scientists that have done like very deep studies on like what will keep people on the app longer so that their eyeballs will see more advertisements so that Facebook gets more advertising revenue, right? They've got this down to a science. Uh, Netflix, you know, they said what their, their biggest competitor is. Has anybody heard this? This is like the CEO of Netflix. It's like giving an interview. He said, our biggest competitor is sleep. <laughs> like our, our biggest competitor is people just like literally like having to go to sleep eventually, right? You know how that thing will come on if you're watching Netflix too long? Like, hey, are you still there, right? Um, this is the world that we live in. We live in an age of distraction. And there are other things that we could mention. Like we also live in other ways that like just kind of like constantly keep us like on this feeling of being in a hamster wheel, right? Like go to school, why? So you can get a job, why? So you can like pay for a house and a car, why? Like, so you can retire one day. You know what the, the retirement age in this country is? I know I'm on a tangent, but I, I love these tangents, I'm sorry. No, it's like 60-something. You know what the, um, the average lifespan of an American is? It's like 75-ish. So you think about that. You work for like 40 years, for 15 years of retirement, being constantly uh, averted, misdirected, having your attention pulled outwards. That does something to us. I mean, aside from just putting us in a state where it becomes very, very difficult to look inward and to be present with your Lord, uh, it also creates a lot of anxiety because we're always thinking about the future. We're thinking about the past. When we're focused outward, we're not sitting right where we actually are. And this leads to record levels of anxiety and depression. This is another thing that characterizes the age that we live in is anxiety and depression. Very common, very common. Um, Allah actually has something to say about this in the Quran. Now to get back to like, you know, off my tangent. Um, Allah talks about the saints, um, what are called the awliya, literally like the friends of God those people who have that relationship with their Lord that is so close that Allah refers to them as his friends. He says, as for the friends of God, there is neither fear, there is not fear upon them, neither do they grieve. As for the friends of God, there is no fear upon them and neither do they grieve. What's interesting about this statement is you think about what fear and grief are. Fear is a preoccupation of something that is coming in the future. When you're afraid, you're worried about something that hasn't happened yet. And this is especially notable in the Arabic because there are two main words for fear in Arabic. The word here is khawf, which is literally like the fear of the unknown. 
Hoshia is like when there's like a you're hiking and like there's a bear in front of you. That's Hoshia. You know what you're afraid of. It's right there. And you want to get away from it. Right? That's Hoshia. Khauf is just like that abstract fear, like what what am I gonna do? Like what kind of world are my kids gonna grow up in? Right? How am I gonna get a job? They're like unknown fears. Grief is being past oriented. Fear is being future oriented. Grief is being past oriented. You're dwelling on things that have already happened. And in both cases, you're dwelling on things that you can't change, right? You're dwelling on things that you can't change. Who are the then? The, the friends of God? The friends of God are the ones who sit in this present moment. They are present with their Lord because they are sitting exactly where Allah put them, right? They're not off somewhere in the future. They're not living in the past. They're right here. I don't know if any of you have ever met a saint. I'll actually tell you the answer to that. You have. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. But when you meet someone that just has this presence about them, and you, you sort of recognize that like, th this is a special person, one of the like, common threads that you'll notice runs through all people like that is that when they're with you, they're with you. They're not anywhere else. They are present with you. That's why we say they have presence, right? Because they're right there. And if you want to talk to them, you can be assured that like, they're not going to get bored and their mind's going to wonder. No, you're going to feel like you are really being invited into a space that you're sharing with them. And interestingly, this is, this is absolutely from the prophetic character. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, like when he would talk to someone, he would turn his whole body towards them, right? He never talked to someone like, you know, he just turned his head like that. He always turned fully towards people, right? And his companions always said about him that they never went to see him and left except that they felt better than they, when they went to see him. And many of them got the impression that they were his favorite person. The, the companion Amr ibn al-As. Like he went and asked the Prophet وسلم, one day, like, who's your favorite person? Because he was convinced that it was him. And the Prophet وسلم, said, Aisha, his wife, Aisha. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, but like, you know, from like the guys, like among the guys, who, who's your favorite? And he said, Abu Bakr, his father-in-law, Aisha's father. And he said, okay, okay, but, you know, it's thinking, like, I'm, I'm pretty close to the top of the list. And so he kept asking, okay, and then who? And then who? And then who? And he said, I got to the point where I wish I had never asked the question because I was so far down the list, <laughs> right? And, like, this was the thing about the prophet, peace be upon him. Like, he would be honest with you. He wouldn't lie to you to, like, pump up your ego. But when you were with him, you, like, you were convinced, like, man, this guy loves me. He loves being with me because he has that presence. This is the quality of the people of God. Um, so to begin learning about this religion, there's actually like a, a practice that I want to do with you all today. Um, I want to do a mindfulness sit. And all this is, 
is a tool that we can use to really come into the present moment. If you've never done a mindfulness sit, um, don't worry, it's incredibly easy, and I'm going to guide you through it anyway. Um, but again, you know, sometimes people, they have the question, like, really, what does this have to do with Islam? Well, in many ways, it's that cure for that ailment that we have of hyper-distraction, of hyper-outwardness, of being constantly future-oriented or past-oriented. It's something that is meant to help bring us into the present moment. And, you know, you can kind of think of it as like, this is the wax on, wax off of Islam, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Karate Kid? Huh? Yeah. Raise, raise your hand if you've seen Karate Kid. Okay. Most people, not all. If you haven't seen it, your homework is to go watch Karate Kid this week. All right. And when you get to the wax on, wax off scene, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But this is the wax on, wax off of learning the religion, okay? So inshallah, um, we're going to do a sit. And all that's required really is for you to get into a comfortable position. Um, you know, just however you want to sit, legs crossed, legs extended. If you want to stand up, you can stand up. Um, just get comfortable. Take a deep breath in through your nose. If you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. Let's just begin by taking three deep breaths at your own pace. Now, what we're going to do is we're just going to bring our attention to the very top of our head. And all I want you to do as you do that is to notice if you're holding any tension there in your forehead. You tend to scrunch it up. Just take note. If you are, it's okay. Don't judge it. You're just noticing right now. And if you do find any tension, just take a deep breath in and exhale that tension. And we're gonna move down our face Bring our attention to our cheeks. Are they relaxed? Are they in an uncomfortable position? Just do the same thing. If you notice something, deep breath in. Exhale the tension.
You move down to your jaw, your tongue. Just let them fall into a natural position. And as your body is quieting down, you're going to start to notice distractions. That sound of the highway behind us, kids crying in the back room. Each time you meet a distraction, you don't have to judge it. You don't have to do anything with it. Just notice it. Bring your attention back to the breath, the deep breath in through the nose. And just let go of the distraction. You can think of each of these distractions as a little package that comes to you as you're sitting on the bank of a river. And as it comes to you, you don't have to do anything with it except just place it on the river, let it float downstream. Every time your mind drifts, that's a good time for a deep breath. You can bring your attention there. Bring it right to the tip of your nose as you inhale the air. We can take one more deep breath. Exhale. Begin to open our eyes if you had them closed. Start to rejoin each other here in the space. What's interesting is like, you start doing this on a regular basis. So yeah, like you relax, um, you sort of calm down, right? And when that becomes something that you get used to doing, and it's a state that you like can access rather easily, um, you'll, like, you'll hear your heart, right? And, then, and that's where the real work starts. Like, it'll start talking to you because believe me, it talks, it has things to say, right? Um, interestingly, did, did you know that there are neurons in the heart? Yeah, there are neurons in the heart. Uh, we tend to think of neurons as only like being up in our brains, right? But there are neurons in the heart that can send signals to the brain that the brain actually can't override. 
right? Like it, it, the heart can tell the brain things to do that it has to do, right? Um, we, we tend to think of like, you know, like this is where our mind is, right? We're up here. But uh, I mean, this is another thing that sort of like uniquely characterizes us in history. Traditionally, people understood like this is where your consciousness is, is right here, right? And that, that was from their own personal experience, the, the reason that they thought that. But our hearts talk to us. They tell us things. Um, they'll tell you things about yourself that you never knew or maybe you forgot at some point. And those things that it tells you, like, that is your path. Okay? That's your path. I'll give you an example, like a personal example. I was on a retreat once where we did a lot of mindfulness meditation. And by the end of it, I was just like, I was in tears at all times. Like I couldn't like go through a sit without just like hearing my heart, like screaming at me. And it was like, I, I hadn't listened in so long that it, it had a lot to say. And I realized I was an angry person. It's a very angry person. It always surprises people. They're like, you're so like quiet. And I'm, it's like, it's never the ones you expect. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I realized that about myself and I realized this is something I have to work on. This is, you know, not only not healthy for me, like on a personal level, this is affecting my relationship with God, right? The things that your heart tells you, that's your path, okay? Um, so inshallah, this is something that we can kind of like incorporate, we can kind of work on. Um, what we did right now, that's called heart work. Heart work. That's what we call it here at Tatleaf. Uh, and Mike, what do we always say about heart work? It's hard work. Yeah. Because it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the focus can be difficult, but also like hearing your heart can be difficult because you don't always like what it has to say, but it will point you in the right direction because it'll point you straight to God. I promise you that. Uh, I'll close with one hadith, inshallah, and then we can have our uh, bean pies and churros and hot chocolate, inshallah. I heard the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, saying, there is a piece of flesh in the body. If it becomes good, the whole body becomes good. But if it gets spoiled, the whole body gets spoiled. And that piece of flesh is the heart. So I'll leave you with that. Until next week, inshallah. Thank you all for being here. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wal-asr inna l-insana lafi khusr. Ila l-dheena amanu wa amilu salihati wa tawasul bil-haqqi wa tawasul bi-sabr. Ameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.